This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. While our team of tax pros are well-versed in all things tax, our areas of expertise include rental real estate and equity compensation. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. At Capital Area Tax Consultants, we believe in pricing transparency and flat fees. Before engaging with us, you'll receive an upfront quote in black and white with a description of any services to be performed. This way, there are no hidden surprises. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, where the worlds of technology and personal finance collide. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to make you just a little bit smarter about your money, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there, listeners. Malcolm here. And as you may have heard me mention on a previous episode, it was two distinct conversations that I had with two separate friends in tech last year that convinced me this podcast would be worth launching. Well, today I'm having one of them join me here in the virtual studio. Malcolm and I recently had a conversation that ranged from how to choose the right online brokerage platform, whether a robo advisor was worth all the hype and how to know which financial advisors are legitimate and which are faking it. And then I had that aha moment that made me realize this was another good topic to discuss in a public setting for our listeners as well. That's right. His name's Malcolm, too. So I'll do my best to let you know which Malcolm is speaking to you when. Malcolm's a strategic sourcing manager at Microsoft. He's also a fellow Aggie. One of those two details is not super relevant to this episode. I just want to get it out there on the record. Malcolm has some questions that he's going to take us through that I've teed up for him. And then some also some questions that he has that I don't know are coming yet. This should be interesting, but these are questions I always suggest that people ask any potential financial advisor that they're considering working with. With that brief introduction, welcome Malcolm Hodge to the Tech Money Podcast, man. What's going on, Malcolm? How are you? Thank you for bringing me on. Thanks for doing this, man. This this should be fun. You've got your list of questions there in front of you, so we'll we'll start from the top, jump right in, and I'm sure our our, our in-studio producer, Eric with an A, will let me know if if I make a mess of anything, so let's get to it. Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay. So if I'm jumping right in, I'm thinking about fiduciaries. And a lot of times when we listen to financial advice, we hear this term fiduciary. My question is, are you a fiduciary? And then I think even taking a step back, if you could let the listeners know what is a fiduciary, that would be super helpful also. That's an easy one. It's not an easy one to explain, but it is an easy answer. Essentially, a Fiduciary is a person who is legally required to put their client's interests above their own or the interests of their firm, which I know to anyone who has common sense who's listening to this, it's kind of like, duh, that should be the case at all times, but it's not. The SEC only requires that financial advice be suitable for the public, not necessarily that it be unbiased. 
to give you an example, if you were to, to go and talk to any old advisor who happens to get paid through commissions, that person has a conflict built into that decision for the recommendation that they make, right? So if I tell you this mutual fund or variable annuity or some other insurance product is the best way to go, there's a very good chance I could get paid, say, a 5% commission on whatever decision I guide you to make. And so right there, I've got an inherent conflict with the advice that I just gave. Whereas a fiduciary is a person who's paid a fee upfront, regardless of the investment decisions that you make or do not make. I like to say I'm product agnostic as a fiduciary financial advisor, which really means that regardless of which direction you decide to go, whether you take my advice or not, I get paid the same. So you know that the advice that you're receiving is is unbiased. But the easier, simpler way to say it, I guess, is that a fiduciary financial advisor is held financially liable for giving conflicting financial advice without putting it in writing and letting the clients know. So that I think is probably the thing that matters more is to know that I'm on the hook financially for giving out bad financial advice. Got it. Got it. That makes a ton of sense. And I guess to follow up with that, are financial advisors required to ask you that or tell you that upfront if they're a fiduciary? No, it's on you, the consumer, to know enough to ask that question. It's great that anybody who's listening to this podcast now knows that that's question number one that you can either answer online going to that person's website or you can ask up front in an email or what have you to get the answer in writing. Um, But one also easy way that I can tell you to know the difference is a lot of the firms that have really big names and really big presences on Wall Street and, and the like. The four that come to mind, because they're the biggest four, is your Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, UBS, and Wells Fargo Advisors. Anytime there's the option to get paid a commission for doing something, whether you exercise that option or not, you technically can't be a fiduciary. And since all of those firms have both options built in, they technically can never act as a fiduciary. So that's kind of just, I guess, the cheat code to know the difference. (laughs) Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense also. I guess jumping into the next question... As I'm looking to identify and choose the right financial advisor, what are some things that I should know or what are the things that I should be thinking of as I'm trying to identify if you're the right financial advisor for me? Well, I guess the qualifications of the advisor make all the difference, uh, at least blindly choosing, right? You, you have a conversation and dig a little deeper and know whether you fit with this person, whether your personality gels and that sort of thing. But just offhand, when you're looking online, doing your online searches at 2 a.m. like I know you do, then <laughs> you're looking for the qualifications of the person first. And some of the easier ways to kind of short shortcut your way there, another cheat code, is to look for folks that have the CFP, the Certified Financial Planner designation. I am a little bit biased in that, I will say. In, in saying that that is what our industry consider, considers, excuse me, to be the gold standard as far as financial planners are concerned, because I am one. But at the same time, I am one because that's what the industry kind of deemed the gold standard. But there's quite a few of them out there. You have the CDFA, for example, which is folks who have chosen to specialize with divorced individuals, or you have the CLU, which is a insurance specific designation, which means that people know quite a bit about complex insurance cases or the CHFC chartered financial consultant, which is about more modern family is always the thing that I think of when I'm trying to explain it. Cause it's more about like 
blended families and all the different ways that the financial planning landscape has changed since, you know, the 50s and 60s when the whole house survived on the husband's income, the wife didn't work, two picket, two two kids, a white picket fence and a dog, all that good stuff. The CHFC has gone away to try and modernize the way that people approach financial planning. So those are some off the top of my head that kind of fit into the how do I know this person has gone out of their way to become an expert in what they do? But there's a ton of them out there. So you can actually go to the SEC's website, the Security and Exchange Commission, go to their website, and it'll actually tell you what the designation means and also give you sort of a scale of how complex it is, how difficult the testing for it is, and how hard it is to keep. Makes sense. Makes sense. Again, like as I'm looking at the advisor, you kind of talked about or touched on some of those qualifications that we looked at and even gave some pretty good resources that I can look into to even make the best decision for me. But as I'm going through some of those qualifications and I'm thinking about the type of client profile that a financial advisor is also looking for, because it needs to be a two-way street, right? So for Mm -hmm. you, what is that typical client profile? If it's not obvious by the name of this podcast, um, I tend to work with a lot of senior managers and executives in tech. And to make it even more specific than that, it's usually folks who are paid a a significant portion of their total compensation in stock. So folks who have a, a pretty complicated tax situation because tech folks tend to be highly compensated, but then also they have a little bit of a complex financial situation because they've got at least one concentrated stock position in a publicly traded company. That's usually the the types of cases that tend to land in my email inbox. A number of folks have sort of their specialization. You know, you have folks that work solely with doctors or nurses and actually happen to have a friend who only works with folks in software sales and pharmaceutical sales. There's people who work only with, I know another advisor who works only with attorneys who are either partner or on partner track. There are folks who specialize because once you know sort of the specifics of how one company or one industry works, it makes it that much easier to go deeper with the clients. But then you have a bunch of people who are generalists. And as long as you fit the profile, as far as like assets under management that they're targeting or a specific age, you know, before retirement or whatever, you kind of fit into their profile. So Some people are super general and other people are super specific. So it's worth asking the question. You know, you, for example, work at a really large, well-known tech company, right? So you could ask how many people do you work with like me who work at this firm as a way to know whether it makes sense to, to engage with that person or not. You made a really good point about being at a larger tech company, but nowadays we're hearing about so many different IPOs and companies that are in that transitional period when they're going public. Um, what about the people whose companies or whose tech companies specifically have not yet gone public? As far as like their private, privately held stock in the, the holdings themselves? Correct. Correct. That actually makes it a little bit more complicated as far as the advice the client would be following, if that makes sense. It's much easier for me to predict what a Microsoft is going to do over the next five years and give you advice on that. It's much tougher to give you advice on what an Airbnb pre-IPO is going to do as far as growth is concerned and, you know, your restricted stock and all those sorts of things. And so it makes it to me, I'm obviously biased again, but it makes it even more necessary to get 
professional advice from someone who knows the tax implications of that decision and how vesting is going to work in your specific situation and, and so on. But it, it does get a little bit more unique with privately held companies versus publicly traded. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. And then even like as we talk about that, going into the next question, you kind of touched on it earlier when talking about how the landscape of money has changed so much, especially in tech, this being mm -hmm. such a new space. Have you worked with people who are in my type of situation? Yeah. So I think that one is, is super important for a couple of reasons. One, because you, you want to know that the person isn't learning on you, right? Like I don't want to go to a surgeon to have my knee repaired and find out that this is their first time doing this type of knee surgery. Everybody's got to start somewhere, right? Like I completely <laughs> understand that that's the case, but right. I, as a consumer, am going to feel a lot more comfortable when I ask that surgeon, how often have you done these type of knee replacements? And they say, oh, you're my you know, number 100th knee replacement surgery. Now I feel a little bit better, right? So that's, to me, one of the more important things to know about the advisor, assuming that your situation is super nuanced, right? There's a lot of cases where people have things going on that aren't that far off the radar. But to bring it back to tech, for example, for a second, like there's a number of things that are super nuanced in people's compensation packages, especially the higher you go in the organization, because now your comp package is a little bit customized. Those things require some special attention and, and some special experience. And so then it matters a little bit more that you've worked with people like me. But then separate and apart from that, I think the age of the person or people goes into that equation too, right? Like you and I are, are millennials, even though I hate to, to allow that term. Um, <laughs> Embrace it. Embrace it. I, I don't. I, I'm like a 65-year-old man in a millennial's body. But I... <laughs> look at that and I say the advice that people tend to want to give to a 35 year old client is almost identical to the advice they want to give to the 65 year old, which doesn't make sense, right? There's a whole lot of life that's going to happen in that 30 year period in between. But the way the financial advice industry is set up currently, there's a few, a small handful of advisors who specialize in working with like millennial clients and even Gen Zers now, because there are some Gen Zers that are even millionaires, but there's still not a ton of focus paid on younger investors, younger clients in the financial advice space. And I think even that is a lost, a lost opportunity where you can't necessarily say that you've worked with people like me as a 30 something year old high earning professional in a major metropolitan area. If all of the rest of your clients that you work with are 59 and above, right? So even that disconnect makes a difference because you can't give me the same advice that you're going to give to that 59-year-old couple that's five or six or seven years away from retirement and needs to be treating things differently from, from me. Earlier, you mentioned the surgeons and how when working with a specific surgeon, obviously, you want to make sure that they have your best interest at heart. Thinking about that same concept, you want to make sure that you're working with people that you actually enjoy, right? If you're playing a sport, if you're on a team at work, you want to work around other people that you like actually being around. And so right. I guess for you, what specifically do your clients enjoy about working with you? Because you're asking me like about me specifically, like I, I mentioned that a lot of the folks that I work with are in the, the tech community. And so the process and approach for us is, is very tech forward. 
there's little paper involved in much of anything at this point, unless you want it, right? So we don't have to throw a whole mu- a bunch of money at USPS and FedEx and whoever else, like the the old days. So that I think is probably one of the most important things. But then it's also the fact that like, as you know, tech people tend to keep very strange hours. And so I get emails about things at 2 a.m. And uh, I have clients who work overseas in places for months at a time and then, you know, come back to the States. And so getting them on the phone to have a conversation or move money around or whatever is a little bit challenging. And so the fact that I'm able to meet them where they are and everything is is pretty tech forward, I think is probably one of the the highlights if I could decide that for them myself. Um, but then also probably the fact that like, kind of to your point, I, I get into the weeds and actually explain things, I think, in a way that you don't always get from a financial planner, right? So to use that surgeon example, again, you go to visit the, the doctor, they examine you and they say, okay, here's what we're going to do. You're going to come back on this date and it'll be done. When you wake up, you'll have a brand new knee. Well, that works for some people, but then there's also the people like you, for example, who I know, you know, you and I have conversations. You ask me a few questions. I give you some examples. And right there, as we're talking, I can hear you typing away, kind of like filling up your list of reference material to go check out after we finish talking. Right. Or then as we have follow up conversations, you're kind of like, here's what I found online, but this doesn't quite make sense. Like, help me make this make sense. And so I think maybe the fact that I actually like take the time to get into the details and assume that you want the details and have them ready for you is probably another one of those things that is a, is a little bit unique, I think. Totally, totally. And then I think as a tech professional, you can always make the safe assumption that we do want the details. I'm, <laughs> I'd probably even be embarrassed at the amount of notes that I've taken from our conversation. So I can totally agree with you there. To my next question, we talked a little bit earlier about what exactly fiduciaries are to you as a financial advisor. How exactly do you get paid? Great question. And I think this is one that people tend to shy away from because it's a little bit probably feels a little bit strange to ask someone that question. But I think it's extremely important to know exactly how and how much the person you know, you're receiving financial advice from is getting paid. There's two separate tracks that you can take. There's probably a ton, but there's two very popular tracks that you can take where one is what we call the traditional assets under management model, where the client pays a percentage of the assets that they manage to the advisor to manage them and maybe even provide some sort of financial planning on the backside of it. A little bit archaic the way that we do that, because, you know, the industry has moved a lot from just give me a few good stock tips and I'll pay you a commission to manage my portfolio for me and give me some really good investment recommendations to help me figure out how to reduce my tax burden, make some really good decisions on insurance coverages, understanding my compensation packet from this job I just got offered, help me figure out if this mortgage is the right one for me and a really good offer. Like those are all the things that financial planning encompasses now. And then probably like 15 more of those examples. But the way that we get paid for doing that work is still by charging that percentage of the assets we're managing. So for example, if a client has a million dollars and we're charging a 1% flat fee, that person is paying $10,000 probably quarterly every three months, $2,500 is being drafted from the investment portfolio that's being managed 
to pay for the ongoing advice and, and that sort of thing. Kind of like having the advisor on retainer, I guess, if you will. On the flip side, there's the option to pay on a monthly recurring fee basis, the same way your Netflix subscription or, you know, I, I recently fell into the Peloton vortex, so I'll use that as my example. So <laughs> like the same way have. Peloton charge, right, exactly. Like it, we, where are we going to go? They kind of have you in that way. If the gyms are closed, where am I going to go? The same way that Peloton knows that every month in exchange for access to their portal and access to their classes and all that good stuff, I'm going to continue to pay on a monthly basis. I mean, they just drafted out of my checking account without me having to think about it. There's a fairly new model of providing planning that way, where we just draft the fees from a checking account or from the investment account. But the client, you know, doesn't necessarily have to already have a really large portfolio to be managed in order to receive the financial advice, as I was describing it before. Either of those two is how we operate. A lot of folks are still on the AUM only model. It is the most convenient, in my opinion, for both sides, but it's a little bit limiting in the fact that not everybody has a million dollar portfolio to pay for investment advice or, or uh, financial planning advice, right? So it locks out a ton of people who would be able to pay on that monthly basis if you gave them the opportunity to. That's why I think it's important to offer an either or not. This is the only way that we do this and we, we, we get who we get. And for everybody who doesn't have it, then too bad. Right, right. For your firm specifically, uh, I was doing a little bit of research myself on just kind of understanding with specific firms, if there are proprietary products that are associated with those, I guess, mm -hmm. could you talk a little bit more about with your firm? Is that something that we would be required to use if your phone even sells those proprietary products? That's a really good one. And I'm going to explain it out a little bit more before I actually answer it. So I'm not delaying. I just want to make sure that it's clear what that is and why this is is important to know. So Please I do. mentioned the fact that there are firms that have the option to either charge a commission for investment management or charge a fee for uh, investment advice. And in a lot of cases, there's no way to clearly separate the two of them. Like there's no way to take one hat off and put on the other. And so you just always have to assume that the advice that you're getting is in the best interest of the advisor who's giving it because there's probably the opportunity to get paid a commission in there somewhere. Well, there's also the, the chance that the advisor's firm that they represent could be getting paid twice. So I mentioned the way that you collect the fee for the advice itself. That's now squared away and that's clear. But then there's also the fees associated with the investments themselves that you use, whether it's an ETF or a uh, mutual fund or uh, some sort of unit investment trust or whatever it is that's been created. Uh, a lot of times the firms themselves create these and, and put them out there. So asset management is one way they get paid. And then investment advice is a different way. And so you'll see, like, if you look at your 401k, for example, all of the funds that are lined up and available for you to invest in, well, each one of those firms also has its financial advice division or wealth management division or whatever they call it. And so there is the potential that the firm could essentially double dip by charging you for the advice on your portfolio and then loading you up with 
eight, 10, 12 of their own mutual funds that are also going to pay the firm asset management fees that are built into the mutual funds themselves. It's We've gotten a little bit away from it. The federal regulators have done a decent job of kind of pushing the industry away from allowing this practice, but it does still happen in some ways where firms would double dip and make it a requirement that you use their proprietary funds in your investment portfolio. That's what you want to be on the lookout for. It's not necessarily a bad thing that you know, one firm offers their own investment products and investment advice. And in giving that investment advice, one or two of their ETFs or mutual funds show up in your portfolio. That's not really an issue in my opinion. It's the fact that in some places they require you to use their investment funds as the solution to, you know, whatever you're doing, whether it's in a regular brokerage account or an IRA or whatever it is. That to me is where it gets a little sketchy. Got it. Got it. I think those are all really good points. And I think that also just emphasizes the point that as you're doing all of this, like whether you're advising um, or trying to identify who is the right financial advisor, you have to do your own research, right? And looking into some of those things because you won't even know what exactly is the right question to ask. So I'm glad that you called that out. Or they have to listen to this podcast. (laughs) Great point. Great point. And with listening to this podcast, I have to ask the all knowledgeable Malcolm, what is your investment philosophy? Great question. I'll, I'll again, define the question and then give you my own take on it. Essentially, every advisor that you are going to meet with has some sort of bias when it comes to investing, whether it's Active management, meaning constantly trading individual stocks and bonds or, or whatever inside of the portfolio or active management in mutual funds, which there's a portfolio manager who professionally is trained to buy and sell stocks, bonds, whatever inside of that particular mutual fund in accordance with what the uh, investment target is. Right. So if it's a large cap growth fund, they're buying super large companies publicly traded companies that trade on the S&P 500 and you know making their determination on which ones are more likely to do well or uh, if it's a passive investment philosophy it's somebody who thinks ETFs are the way to go you just index your way to prosperity is actually a phrase i've heard recently that made me laugh but basically you're buying the broader market and you're making a bet that i can buy the S&P 500 index and over time it's going to do just as well or better than that actively traded large cap growth mutual fund, which the mandate of the large cap growth mutual fund is to beat its index. So that's why the fees for that professional money manager who's running that mutual fund are probably about twice as much as they are if you were to buy the individual ETF that just tracks the index and that's all you get. There are people who say if you just the the bogleheads, if you will, the people who follow the Vanguard methodology, the the Vanguard founders methodology of literally just buy the ETF, hold on to it for the rest of your life. And it'll rise with a high tide because the market eventually that, that trend line tends to point upward. There's people who fall somewhere in between. And then there's people who are polar opposites. You know, if you look at the way our political climate is in the United States right now, right? Like you have people who are that much opposed from the passive versus active conversation. I personally 
my investment philosophy since, you know, we're now turning this on on me, my personal investment philosophy, uh, I like to say is to win by not losing. And that sounds a little bit kitschy, but really what that means is focusing on the downside risk of an investment first and not just focusing on the upside. I'm not the friend who's going to walk with you into a casino and look at the fact that you could walk up to a roulette table, for example, and put all your chips on this one number and it's going to pay you 35 to one, right? Like to me, the downside is you just lost all your chips. You may look at the upside and say, yeah, but I could earn 35 times what I have if my number comes up in that one out of whatever uh, iteration, you know, comes to bear. But I'm focused on the downside, which is, but you could lose all your chips, right? So let's figure out a way to still be in the game, but not have the risk of losing all of your chips if this thing doesn't go right. And then separate and apart from that, what is the likelihood that you're going to lose your chips here versus here, right? So making a a calculated bet, because there's always risk inherent in investing, right? Making sure that the risk that we're taking actually matches the amount of reward that we're expecting to get. Otherwise, you're not getting paid for the risk you're taking. Super, super oversimplification, but that's really what it comes down to. Like you want to make sure when you're weighing an investment that you're actually getting compensated for each unit of incremental risk that you're taking in that portfolio. And so I always focus on the downside first, because if you look at the models that show where a person could lose 50% of their investment, and then it takes them twice as long to get back to where they were. Whereas a person who loses half that amount, it takes them one, one time their initial investment to get back to where they were, which means that as long as we don't lose as much as the market itself, the the broader market, the indexes, whatever you want to compare it to, we stand to still do better over time than everybody else who's kind of just high octane foot on the gas at all times and what will be will be. So hopefully that made a little bit of sense, but it's it's you know a little bit tough to to describe just in words without all of my graphs that I tend to lean on when I do these meetings over Zoom with um, prospective clients. No, I, I think that makes sense. And I think that it's also worth, like, as people are working with you or whoever they are working with as their financial advisor, that they ask those types of questions up front and they're looking to understand what that long-term gain is for them, specific, specifically within the tech space, right? My, my next question for your clients and as they may already work with financial advisors, they have the bank that they're working with. Do you require your clients to move their investments under your management? And then you kind of mentioned earlier with the tax implications that are associated with moving different investments with that specific event, are there tax consequences to moving your money under your management specifically? A lot of times, as I mentioned, we have that traditional assets under management model that that basically dictates that you've got to actually move your assets under my management in order for me to be able to charge you a fee for the advice and the planning and the everything else that goes into that service model. So there are a lot of times advisors who say, like, if you don't move all of your assets here, then I can't really give you advice, which has some validity to it. I've got to at least have visibility on it. But one thing to be aware of from your side as the potential client is that any account that 
your advisor doesn't actually maintain what's called custody over, which means they've got the ability to act on your behalf with those investments. They're not actually allowed to like make things happen on your behalf. So for example, your 401k plan, right? It's held somewhere else. As long as it's held somewhere else at your company and the company that they've used to facilitate it, I, as the advisor, don't have the ability to take custody of your 401k plan, go online and place trades and, you know, change your allocation the way that, you know, we decided is appropriate for your uh, risk profile. So it's important to understand, like, the importance and why advisors ask people to move the assets. But with that said... Uh, In some cases, if you were to liquidate something like, for example, if your 401k is full of Microsoft stock, for example, and you've got a large amount of appreciation between the shares where you initially acquired them 20 years ago when you got there versus today, there's a whole bunch of different tax consequences on deciding to liquidate that portfolio, specifically the net unrealized appreciation rules that mean that if you were to liquidate that account and move it to your new advisor's place, you kind of forfeit being able to to, uh, elect to take the more favorable tax treatment on that account. I won't get too much into the weeds because we'll be here all night, but that's an important thing to know. It's important to understand whether that advisor requires you to move all of those assets and what are going to be the tax implications. What do you give up? from a tax perspective, uh, if you were to uh, actually follow that advice. So that's why that's important to know, because, you know, once you pull the trigger and ask your 401k plan provider to sell, there's no undoing it. You've now just created a taxable event. Potentially, you've created a taxable event and there's no way to go back on it. Got it. Got it. That's actually a really good point. And something that I've dealt with just as recently as this morning, uh, working <laughs> with my fiance who was trying to move her older 401k into another account and then just trying to understand what exactly the representative meant when they said that it would be a taxable event. And even considering if that's going to be in the current year or the next year, especially as we uh, get closer to the end of the year. So thank you for clarifying that. I'm sure you've worked with clients uh, that want to talk every day. There are probably some clients that don't want to talk that often. I mean, you kind of even talked about it earlier, specifically within the tech space, you'll have clients or tech professionals who work deeper into the night with you specifically. Is there any expectations that you set with your clients or how should we even as the client think about how often we would meet and communicate because people are so different? Yeah, it's definitely a matter of preference. I personally ask the clients in the onboarding meeting that we do, like how frequently do you want to communicate? If it's a couple, which of you is the person that wants to hear from me more than the other? You know, who should be copied and who should be directly the person I'm talking to on the email? Or if I need to place a phone call to you guys, who's the person I should actually call and who's going to get it relayed to them? Like, It's important to me to ask those things just to know what people's preferences are. But I also think as the client, it's important to if if there is an issue where you're not getting communicated enough to is usually where the problem is. So if you're not getting enough communication from your advisor, it's important for you as the client just to say that because they may be assuming that you don't want to hear from them all that often. They don't want to bombard you with information and phone calls and emails and whatever, when in reality, you actually would prefer a few more touches. 
it's important just to make sure that you are on the same page. And so I, I just asked that, you know, in the onboarding meeting, because if I did have somebody to your point who says, you know, I expect to hear from you once a week, well, we're probably not going to be able to work together, right? Like I, I, there's absolutely no way that I'm going to be able to communicate new information and valuable information to you on a weekly basis, right? And I have a, a mandate that I never ask a client to take a meeting that's not actually like worth their time. I don't want to have a meeting about having another meeting. It's important just to make sure you guys are on the same page and set those uh, expectations up front. So thanks, Malcolm. We'll have to uh, have you on to do this again. Uh, maybe we'll do a show with questions from our listeners uh, one of these days or something like that. Eric with an A, go ahead and take us home. All right. Well, I, I've really appreciated Malcolm H being on the show. I've heard the of the show Malcolm in the Middle, but this is more like Eric in the Middle of two Malcolms. So <laughs> this, this was fun to hear you guys go back and forth. Great questions, great answers. And I know that the audience is going to uh, get a lot of value from this. So I appreciate both of you guys and your time. And of course, last thank you goes to the listening audience. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the Tech Money Podcast with Malcolm Etheridge. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Malcolm comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your colleagues. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Tech Money, our hope is that this show helped make you a little smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out malcolmetheridge.com slash podcast. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is malcolmetheridge.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge, with the production, the editing and sound controls powered by top advisor marketing, Crowdmouth. This has been a Malcolm on Money original. Thank you for listening. The information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation. This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. Our team of certified public accountants and enrolled agents is well-versed in the latest tax laws, ensuring that you capitalize on every opportunity for strategic tax optimization. We anticipate changes and keep you up to date on opportunities to potentially reduce your tax bill in the future. With a focus on precision and strategic planning, we are your trusted partner both during tax season and throughout the year. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Um...